the Idaho Department of Corrections came up with a really great idea called the Justice Reinvestment Initiative. And California has done it. Other states have done it where they said, we need to save money. How are we going to save money? Well, we're going to. By getting, by releasing people out of prison Simone, earlier. That's exactly what it is. That California is called Rule 234 yeah. or something or something like that, where you would let people out. Um, to yeah, save money. That's what it is. And they lied. They said that, well, they were going to use this money for better training for p- parole officers, which they never did. Um, the guy that shot me wasn't supposed to be out of prison until 2026. Jeez. Well, we wouldn't be doing this podcast if they just followed through oh, on that. You guys would go broke. So <laughs> on November 9th, Mar- his name's Marco Romero. Hispanic gang we refer member, to South those, Sider. We, we refer to them as piece of yeah. shit. Yeah, we don't we don't give them any airtime. So the yes, POS. Well, yeah, I, for a long time, I wouldn't even say his name, but fuck that guy. I and I, him. he had gotten out of prison, and they always they only jack him up if you do something. They they'll just put him back for thirty, sixty, or ninety days. It's not like they. Yeah, you violate them. They don't no, really a, enforce it. What, it's just a respite for them, what, where they can go back into prison, reconnect with their their crew homies, yeah. you know, get everything figured out. And then they, they come back out on the street. What was he in for? Uh, name it. I mean, he, he'd been in for gun stuff, shooting, uh, into, uh, occupied dwelling, a uh, drive-bys dope, uh, theft, name it. And so when he went back in, here's the, the, the rub on this is when he went back in, it was for a, fuck maybe like a fraud like a check fraud or something stupid and mm-hmm. so they gave him like 60 days Was he a gang big time big time okay in fact i i should if you look at that dude every tattoo he has they're all the like traditional hispanic you know tattoos and all your bullshit and then you know all of his 13 on his he had it all he he was he was definitely a shot caller um, it started out as a prison gang. And then when he came out on the street, it, it kind of moved out on the street. Like most gangs do, they, they do their dirt out here too. So on, he was convinced, and this is what was told to me by the Meridian detectives who investigated this, that he had thought he had gotten snitched on. That's why he went back to prison. So when he gets out, he goes to a house party. It was an apartment and there's, 15 people in there and they're sitting at the kitchen table and they start getting into a, a little beef about who said what, why he went back to prison. Well, he skins his gun, bam, 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 shoots three people, paralyzed one lady, shot one dude in the leg. He can't walk anymore. And then shot somebody else. And people are jumping out of the windows and this is a second or third floor. So, you know, police swarm, he's gone. The next day, and this is, she's 89 years old, a lady's, no shit, coming out of her water aerobics class, and dude comes into the, catches her in the parking lot, puts a gun to her head, steals her Buick Sabre, Le Sabre or whatever, a four-door that an 89-year-old woman would drive, mm-hmm. and carjacks her, steals her car, and takes off. Now, let's go to November 11th, the day I got shot. Now, that's Veterans Day. It's a holiday. I don't know how it works with your guys' agencies, but if you're not what they determine to be, uh, what's the word they use? Like essential, essential personnel, patrol. Yeah. 
all the detectives, CID, anybody that's not a uniform cop is off that day because they don't want to pay the money. So you run at minimums. I mean, we are skinny. SWAT team, mm-hmm. a lot of the dudes are in working narcotics that are on the team. They're, they have specialty units that they work in. And they all left. So now our SWAT team's down from 12 entry guys and four snipers to six entry guys and one sniper. About one how in is, the... How is SWAT not a... Uh, uh, Essential. Well, a critical it, it just isn't. That's the way the admin works. Who knows? That's just the way they think. So on that day, November 11th, it's probably one in the afternoon. One of our guys who, shit, I don't even know what unity works in. He's in his own car. He's at a red light, a four-way red light. At, it's called Rose Hill and Roosevelt. It's an intersection. He looks over at the car next to him. And he goes, holy shit, that's the guy. Because everybody had dipshit's picture, right? So mm-hmm. everybody was kind of mm-hmm. looking for him. And he goes, that's the guy. So he doesn't have a, he doesn't have a uh, radio. He doesn't, he's got a cell phone. So he kind of holds it down and he's surreptitiously calling dispatch saying, I'm behind the guy. This is where we're at. And mm-hmm. ultimately the guy gets a little hinked up. Because, you know, and they're going through neighborhoods and he's trying to call in the troops. Eventually, he gets on one of our main thoroughfares called Orchard Street. And it is packed with people because it's a holiday. And he passes our canine unit, one of our canine units, who sees him and goes, shit, there he is. Turns on him and the chase is on. And I'm talking through yards, breaking through fences, going into oncoming traffic. 80 miles an hour. So of course I'm down in the Valley, which is the downtown area of Boise. And it's called the bench, which is the kind of, it, it doesn't matter. It's the South part of the city. And of course I'm adhering to all federally mandated speed limits. And as, uh, <laughs> yeah, as sure I'm trying are. to get up to this area <laughs> and they find the car abandoned in a residential neighborhood and a two man car is rolling down a street and keep in mind this neighborhood's pretty shitty and it's been there since the fifties houses are pretty rough. I mean, the, the trees are big, everything's all the, everything from shrubs there. It's just really big. And two guys are rolling down the street. They see a guy in a hoodie come out of a driveway and they go, that's, I think that's him. They both, they stop their car. They both pop their doors and he turns and walks towards them. And I think he was going to probably shoot the, if it was a one man car, they're going to kill the cop. And when he sees both of them, he's like, uh, this isn't fair enough for me. So he runs back and long again, they, they put it out on the radio. Everybody bombs the area. They get this one block area surrounded. And there's nine or 10 houses in this one block area. So we wait, we put out the, uh, the page, a alert. This is where we're going to meet, et cetera. Everybody gets there. We saddle up. We have three canines there because it's, it was a November 
16th, but it was a warm day. It was like 65 degrees, which is freaky. Not a cloud in the sky. Hey, and what kind of dog is Jardo? What's he, what's he trained for? Biting human beings really hard. He's a male. Okay. He's a super good tracker. Um, very good tracker. Yep. So, but not cross-trained in narcotics or anything, uh, just a patrol he, he dog? He might be. I, I wasn't sure at the time because okay. we had single-purpose dope dogs, and then he might have been cross-trained. I okay. don't know. All I know is whenever <laughs> we would go on a raid, like if we're going to hit a house or something, it's three in the morning. And we're always in the back lot. We got our Bearcat, you know, our armored vehicle, and we're, we've done all our dry runs through everything. And Jardo would come up to you, and he had his muzzle on, but he had all of his e-collar and all his stuff around his neck. And he would come and sit next to you and like bump his head into you and you'd scratch his ear. Like he knew what was going on and he was, he mm-hmm. wasn't sharp. We call him, I call him sharp, like a dog that, that'll bite you. Like mouths sometimes will bite somebody just because they get so pumped up that they. We had a couple guys on talk about that. They got, they got bit by yeah. their own oh, dogs. No, it happens yeah. all the time, but Jardo wasn't that way. <laughs> if you sent him or put him in an attic or a crawl space or an area search, if he finds a dude, he's going to bite him. But the, the cops, for some reason, he never was that way. He was super sweet. Anyways, um, we started, and the plan was it was going to be we're going to go yard to yard. And we had our sniper and a spotter on the roof of the house. He came out of the driveway, which we don't do, which is kind of Hollywoodish. But the reason we did it was they had a really good overwatch position of all the backyards. Because the backyard's kind of, you know, butted up to, against each other. And mm-hmm. uh, they had their ARs. They didn't have their bolt guns. Well, they had a bolt gun, but they had their AR. So if something popped off, they had a really good vantage point to engage Shitbird if, you know, if it something happened. What what time of day oh, was shit, this? Three in the afternoon. So it's still oh, daylight. Yeah, very, very much daylight, which sucked. But... Um, that was kind of, is that usual weather and stuff no, for no. Boise uh, in November? It could have been two feet of snow, you know, in November, but it just happened okay. to be a really nice day. I just, that's the one thing I remember. I just, it was a very nice day. And I remember Denny, who was our team leader because our sergeant was back at the TOC, which is the tactical operations center. If you guys, Morgan, if you don't know what that is, but. Um, he does <laughs> <laughs> who authorized to give? Who authorized you to give me shit? You have not. You have not been cleared for that. I yeah, I did. I gave him permission. <laughs> your, your partner did. So, anyways, um, <laughs> back to our regularly scheduled. Here we podcast. go. He says, uh, "Hey, Kev, I want you to be point because shit. I'd had fifteen years experience of being on entry, and it was nothing new. And I'm, you know, I'm not going to say no. That's just the way it is. So he goes, I want mm-hmm. you and Chris to be point." And we started in the first, the last spot he was, you know, that driveway he came out of. And, and keep in mind, man, there's like old abandoned cars in the backyard. There's sheds, there's decks. I remember seeing guys getting on their hands and knees with their pistols and their pistol lights, trying to, you know, look under decks, hot tub. It was just, it was so sketchy. But in, I, you got to understand Idaho. We went around to all the houses and we said, you, you know, we got a dude that's armed, that's in your neighborhood. Guys are like, I'm going to stay here. I hope he comes in my house. I'm ready to go. Yeah, because everybody in Idaho is pretty yeah, much Yeah, I know. Armed. He's like, shh, shh, 
he goes, I hope that some bitch comes to my, you know, that's how they are here. It's weird. And so we said, okay, just stay here. Don't shoot the dudes wearing the heavy body armor and the helmets and the, yeah. the you know, the, your night vision stuff. I go, don't shoot us. Just if he breaks into your house, you're free to go. And he's like, okay. Anyways. So there was a lot of people. And my thought was this dude's going to break into a house and hold somebody hostage, which is going to be a worst case scenario. I mean, we don't want to do that. So we go through the first yard, nothing go into the second yard and <laughs> I'll never forget. It was a two story house. I can see a lady on the second floor and I go, Hey, can you come to your front door? And she goes, I can't come to the door. And I went, Oh shit. Yep. I go, can you, can you come to the door and talk to us? And she goes, I can't make it to the door. And I went, fuck here. I go, dude's in this, in her house. Mm-hmm. And I go, is there, she goes, but I can come to the back door. And I went, what? And I walked in the back door and she's a full on hoarder. Like you'd see on TV. There was so much shit in her house. She, she oh. literally couldn't make it to the, <laughs> literally yeah. could not make it to the front oh, door. Geez. Oh, yeah, damn. So it was kind of, I'm getting all psyched I'm, up I'm here. like you, I'm sitting that's here thinking, thinking, okay, that's a sign. That's yeah, a yeah, clue. Yeah. It's you're trying but, to tell me. It was, she's fine. There was nobody in there, but I kind of got a chuckle out of that. And then, uh, would have been easy to find him if oh, he was. It would have been horrible. Well, he could have hit bitten hiding under a 20 foot stack of magazines. But um, we go to the third house and this is where everything kind of broke down is it's the same pretty, just a house. And I'm going to use the term wing fencing. You know, you have your house and then you have the side fencing, right? And then your backyard's fenced. So our plan was, here's what we're going to do, boys. We're going to move up to the side of the house. I'm going to open the gate. We're going to send Jardo in the backyard. And this is going to be his last yard because he's starting to get gassed out because it's hot. And searching for dogs, is it takes a lot of energy. So we're going to rotate him out. So I'm looking at the, the side. I'm looking at, if you're, imagine you're on the sidewalk staring at a house. I'm looking at the left side and there's one car in the driveway and the left side of the house has a wing fencing with a gate and then another fencing off the side and then the house. And it's narrow. Like any, you two could, I don't even think anybody like Chris and I couldn't even stand shoulder to shoulder. Okay. That's how narrow it was. And there's two plastic trash cans. I don't know what you use in Florida or or wherever, but it's kind of with the wheels, you know, and you tip it back and wheel it out Mm -hmm. to your curb. And they're, you know, yeah. That's what that's what Merce's wife does with him in the wheelchair in the morning. She tries to get rid of him, wheels him out to the curb, leaves him. Nobody picks him up. She tries. I keep coming back like a bad thing. So I I see the trash cans and we go, okay, Chris, you cover me. The other guys are kind of behind us, about fifteen yards. Jardo's in a down position. I move up. I've got my AR just slung, hanging in front of me. Got my pistol in the, my thigh rig i'm dicking with the uh and i move i move one of the trash cans to get in there okay and how many guys how many guys are out there there's you there's chris there's jardo how many other guys do you have with Eight, you nine okay so i go up and i'm messing with the gate and keep in mind i mean there's some other peripheral things that were going on like one of our snipers goes look there's a shed in this backyard. I don't think the door was open. It might be open now. I think something like we're getting like things are starting to happen where we're thinking this is where the guy is. 
we're we're starting to kind of you know close in on him. The circles that is starting to close on him. And so as I'm messing with it, Chris is standing with his thighs against the other trash can, and he's on his tippy toes, and he's got his AR, and he's kind of looking over the fence to maybe just to get a you know a visual of what the backyard looks like. And what we didn't know is there's a teeny little alcove. And keep in mind, this dude's like 5'4", a buck 40. So he's pretty small. And he had secreted himself in this little teeny alcove behind the gray trash can. So Chris has got his AR up over the trash can, kind of looking. And the muzzle of his AR is literally right above the guy's head. Does that make sense? He just doesn't yeah. know he's behind mm-hmm. there because it's dark and kind of shadowy too because there's a big tree there. And I'm messing with this. I'm messing with it. And I don't know if I heard something or I sensed something, but I remember I went like this and I looked to my right and there the fucker was and he was squatted down like on it, flat on his feet, but squatted down on his heels and he's got his pistol up. And he's looking right over the sights at me, both eyes open. And I remember I looked at him and keep in mind, this is like that fast. And I said that he wasn't scared. He wasn't stressed. He wasn't mad. He was as cool as a fan. And I went and I looked at him and I go, oh man, I'm about to get shot. And I go, okay, well, hopefully he hits me in my vest. And he doesn't like hit me in the head or something like that. But then I said, I got to get off this X, but I can't go forward because I got a gate. I can't go to the right because it's a house. I can't go to the left because it's a six foot fence. So I go, shit. So I took one step back and I'm just starting to reach for my pistol. And I turn just a hair as I'm drawing it. And that's when I got shot in the lower in the ass cheek and he was lower than me. So the bullet went up into an upward trajectory and hit me in the vertebrae in the spine. Where's Chris where, when you're there, where's Chris standing? right next to me. Now, Chris, this, the first shot, he doesn't know. And I'd talked to him about this. He doesn't exactly know where the bullet came from. If it went through the fence or something, because he, he heard it. Right. But he doesn't really mm-hmm. know, but he can't see the guy. And that small area, the sound can play tricks too. You don't know it's echoing and bouncing off of stuff. But keep in mind, the first shot went off and then this was in a, in a second later, dude comes up from behind the trash can with his gun coming up and he's going boom, boom, boom. And he's shooting me and he shot me in the right femur. Okay. Shattered my femur. I got a rod from my knee all the way up into my hip. Shot me in my stomach, which almost killed me, underneath my vest. Why is he shooting you? Is it because Chris is not in his line of fire or you're just the first target? Know. Why is why Can't are, ask him. He's dead. Know. I mean, I don't know. I Well, that's room temperature is good for him, but I, I'm saying. I but, think it was just, he just went dot, 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 like as fast as you could pull a trigger on a semi-auto. It, it was shooting a nine millimeter. People always ask. He didn't have high speed. You know, duty ammo it was just ball ammo that you practice with. But he shot me in my leg, and I had been shot in the back. So I'm trying to turn over, but my brain is spinning because I can't move. And it was the weirdest sensation ever. And I'm trying to get my gun out, 
And then by this time, Chris has seized the top of his hoodie just over the top of the trash can. He goes, fuck, there he is. So he takes a step back and he he puts his AR on top of his shoulder and dumps about 15 rounds through the trash can. And the weird thing about that is the vast majority of all the bullets, and we're talking just plastic. There was this trash can was empty. All those two, two, three rounds disintegrated. They skipped off the lid. They went through one side, blew up inside. A couple of them went through and hit him in his torso. But he's still shooting me. And like, let me finish up. Shot me in the stomach, which hit a big artery, which caused me to bleed internally. That's what almost killed me. And shot me in the nutsack of all things. So I heard this amazing, loud clang of steel balls just going, ka-ting! That's a joke. When he hit me in the ball sack. <laughs> See, you cannot pull this shit on us. We're sitting here. Oh, no. word, you're being serious. And then you drop a joke like to. that you, on If us? you don't laugh, man, you, you'll go crazy. But he did. Went through my nuts, which I didn't know at the time. And then he shot me below my left knee in my shin, right in my tibia. And I, I, it blew a hole about the size of a golf ball. Complete, it, it's like if you drilled a little teeny hole into your tibia and then shoved it with C4. And then blew it up is what it looked like. It was crazy. And are you feeling any no. pain at this point? No, or I was just mad. Just- I wanted to stab him. Like I, had, I, I was so fucking pissed, and I didn't know everything was a blur at this point because Chris had a suppressor on his AR, so I couldn't really hear. It. I mean, I could hear it, but it was just I didn't know what he was shooting at. Uh, Brian, who you'll you'll talk to tomorrow, was on the corner of the house. He steps around the corner. And cranks off a couple rounds and hits him just above his left or right eye, just double taps him. And then Denny Carter behind me shoots and shoots him a couple times too. So he got shot about six or seven times. And by this point, he's down, he's all slumped over, you know, his left eye is bulging out and all that stuff, and or his right eye. And I remember somebody came up and grabbed me. And drug me behind the car. And I was calm, believe it or not, at this point, because I didn't know the severity of my injuries. And we have what's called TACMED, where we have two paramedics that go with us on every single operation. And I've seen them, you know, we've shot dudes before and they make sure they don't die, you know, they, or, or it's really for us. Well, immediately they start putting tourniquets on my legs. Um, which I cannot emphasize enough. I know a lot of cops wear, use them and wear them on their duty belts, but goddamn, man, practice using your tourniquets because it will save your life someday. And I've talked to many cops who have saved their own life getting shot, like in the armpit where the big artery comes through and they're able to do that or to be able to put a tourniquet on yourself under a stressful situation is a, is way more important. I think than you know, your being a, being a good shot and stuff like that. Cause it'll save you. And that's, I had three tourniquets on me. So now I'm in the, and I'm laying on my back in the driveway and everybody's wow. And I'm like, everybody calm down. Jesus Christ. It'll be fine. And one, our tac med girl, her name's uh, Annalise. Like she just left and got hired with Nampa fire, which is good for her. But she was a stud. She's about five, two. 
collegiate pole vaulter five you know she was awesome takes charge gets everything worried or i mean everything put together they don't even call an ambulance my stomach's i'm getting super distended at this point and they're trying to stop all the bleeding and they just say let's throw them in the bearcat in our armored vehicle and we'll run, rush to the hospital and brian who you'll talk to scoops me up and thank god it was him because the it really helped me a lot he picks me up because i know he's big and strong enough picks me up steps on the back grate of the armored vehicle chris is already inside he, and chris got shot in the thigh and it came out his butt cheek because when the guy stood up from the behind the the uh trash can he ended up shooting chris in the thigh hmm. And let's talk mm-hmm. about that for a second, too, because you said he was using mm-hmm. ball ammo. A lot of times we'll use mm-hmm. hollow points, and that stuff's not going to do that. That's going to go in and tear shit up and usually stay inside. But did the ball, was the fact that he was using ball ammunition instead of jacketed hollow points, is, can you say whether or not that contributed to your survival? It sucks to get shot, um, but would it have been worse with the hollow point? That's a good question. I mean, I, I probably, I mean... We all know, I mean, if you, you're, if you're, we shoot Spear Gold Dot, that brand, which is a phenomenal, it's made in Northern Idaho. It's a phenomenal, you know, a duty round. Mm-hmm. I, I probably would have died, I guess. But I was also, you know, on a side note, I was horrified at how much damage a, a ball projectile can do to a human body. You know, we think of just target practice, but. I was laying on my back and my boot is on my chest at one point in the driveway because my leg was just, and Brian screaming, don't touch his leg. It's going to fall off. That's how bad my left leg was from a ball ammo. I could hear him going, don't touch his fucking leg. Don't touch his leg. And he moves my, my, I could see the soul of my Vibram soul on my chest and he mm-hmm. lays it back down because it was just flopping around because it was completely destroyed. That has got to be, I mean, I know you don't process it then, but later, but that's got to be like, what is my foot doing? Oh, here? totally. I went, what? I thought I broke it when I fell. I thought it was broken, not shot. Cause I couldn't, there's a lot of shit going on. I go, I must've fallen and like broke my leg or something, but no, it was a bullet. And, uh, I got to tell you the story. Cause I, I think I, and I told, uh, Murph this, but Brian picks me up and lays me. So my, my back is against his chest, right? And we go into the Bearcat, and as fate would have it, he lands on Chris's shot leg, and Chris screams. Oh. He's like, you're on my leg. <laughs> so he sits on his God. leg that just had been shot. So he moves that, and then he, uh, on the way to the hospital, on lease, is like, here, put this oxygen mask on him. And I'm starting to, at this point, shit's getting real bad for me and i could feel myself circling the drain right i'm going holy shit this is what it's like to die and i could feel myself getting like i don't know how to describe it like almost like i'm just kind of sinking into this comfort it's really weird i wasn't scared i wasn't it was really kind of a peaceful type of experience i don't know how else to describe it i wasn't scared i don't know how to put it but I, I felt it and I go, oh man, this is, so this is what it's like. You know, this is really it. 
I go, I'm going to fucking die. And is what I was thinking. And Brian, my best friend in the world, he's talking to me and he's telling me, Hey man, just be cool. We got you. We're almost there. Hang on, hang on, hang on. And he sticks the oxygen mask over my face and I can't breathe. And I'm like, I reach up and I'm trying to pull it out. And I'm like, I'm like, Brian, I can't breathe. I don't know what's going on. And he's like, Hey brother, be cool, man. It's cool. Just chill, just chill. And he's fighting me because I'm trying to take it off. And I'm like, and I get my, I get it off and he slams it back on again. He's holding it. And I'm like peeling his fingers back. And I'm like, brother, I cannot breathe. The air's not on. He goes, Oh, my bad. And he reaches over and goes, shit, he turns the fucking oxygen on. And I was like, That's why I was laughing because you told me that the other sweet, day. Sweet, sweet air. Thank you. My he goes, bad. That's what he said. Oh, he my goes, bad. I'm sorry. Oh, my bad. So, <laughs> we went screaming. Hey, Morgan, who else does that sound like? That sounds like something Mel or Santee would say out in San yeah. Diego. Yeah. Oh, oh my yeah. bad. My I bad. talked to Mel about his shooting. We'll have to talk about that too, yeah. Murph. Yeah. Um, Diego's my, my bad. So yeah. we get there. Everybody, they had about a minute to prep. And St. Alphonsus is the hospital. I was a mile and a block from there. If I would have been further east, I would have died for sure. But I, I went to the only trauma center in southwestern idaho <laughs> and i roll in and i've been in that goddamn trauma room 50 times on shooting victims where you go in trying to get a dying declaration whatever i'm in there i'm looking around and i'm like this is the most surreal thing that's ever happened to me i go i never thought now i'm the victim yeah, and i'm in and this I, room and on I my go, back. chris are you here and he goes yeah i go you okay he goes yeah i'm doing good how are you doing and then it was lights out i woke up 10 days later i'd been in icu fully intubated, um, asleep wow. for 10 days. And, but you know, that goes back to that immediate decision that was made at the scene is we're not going to wait for an ambulance. That's what saved your life too, is throwing you in that bearcat and getting you out to that yes. hospital, which that was good that the hospital was like a level one trauma center that they yes. can handle you. Yeah. I would think it's a level three or level four. I mean, level, level three, three, is that right? Okay. Anyways, it doesn't matter, but I went and, uh, I woke up and what's the first thing you wanted to know, or what's the first thing when you woke up, you remember, I remember how thirsty I was because I hadn't had a drink in 10 days and I had had a tube down my throat and I couldn't talk because of the, just for the love of God, don't tell me you asked for no, a Bud no, Light. I did not ask for a Bud Light. Okay. <laughs> All I wanted was honestly just a sip of water and they wouldn't give it to me because of the yeah. damage. It, through mm -hmm. my colon, my large intestine, you know, I've got a colostomy bag. They, um, they, they, and they couldn't, well, the, the, the main thing, what they tried to do was stop the bleeding. So they rushed me into surgery. They cut me open from my junk all the way up here to my sternum, pull it apart. They're pulling all my intestine, all my guts out. They can't find it. So they take a, and this is the coolest thing ever. They put this contrast dye in, they took a wire in my femoral artery. And they could see during a live x-ray where the leak or the blood was coming out of. And they snaked this hot coil to where it was coming out of whatever artery in my stomach, cauterized it, and that was it. Saved, that's what really saved me was that treatment right there. Wow. So I woke up. Wow. I remember looking at my left leg, and I had those rings all down my left leg with screws and pins and everything. They tried to save it. Mm -hmm. Um. Uh, it was it was complete hell. I can't describe it any other way. It's 
I would never wish the next two weeks on anybody in, in my life, my worst enemy. I had a stomach infection. That was the most painful thing I've ever been through. Um, after about day six or seven, I had 32 surgeries, okay, from the time I got shot until the time I got released out of the hospital. That's how many I had. And one, the, the, the problem was they kept trying to save my left leg, and they were putting cadavers. They were doing skin grafts. And finally, you know, it just got to where they were, you know what a debridement is? Where they have like yeah, rotting boy, flesh and they scrape it off. I've seen them do that in the hospitals, burn victims right. and other stuff where you got to take the skin off. I don't even want to be around that stuff because I, I don't know how those folks do that. Just to hear some couple of times the screams it's, of the shit. And, but they, they have, have to, to do, do it. it. I couldn't feel it because I was paralyzed. But they would take me down in the morning. They would do it. They Hopefully it would take. It wouldn't take. So finally, I, ha- I had to make the decision myself. I'm sitting there and I go, I'm going to I go cut my leg off. That was the other option. Just amputate it because I'm never going to walk again. There's no point. And then they wanted to start taking skin grafts from my upper body. And I'm like, fuck, man, I don't want to do that. That sounds stupid because no other skin graft has worked to this point. So ah, hit pause. Ah. Hey, guys, we took another quick break because this, I mean, uh, I'm telling you, this is the toughest interview we've ever done. We've had some bad stuff on, but just, I got to tell you, brother, I I cannot, it is very difficult for me to sit here and watch you go through this and feel like I feel so fucking helpless, like I can't do anything. You can't. For you. (laughs) That's the sad part about it. Nobody can. Nobody can. No neurologists I've talked to. And if I went through... I could spend 45 minutes talking about the things that I've done to try to decrease my pain from I've got a a spinal cord stimulator in my back that has a battery pack in my oblique that I can charge. I've got I've done acupuncture, I've done every massage, I've done ketamine treatment, I've done you name it and it's all came up nothing, you know, nothing really helps. And so um let's see where were we at? So I I battled through that well, and then well let's let's rewind for mm-hmm. just a second um and you cuz you talked about it at the beginning of the podcast they could not remove all mm-hmm. of the bullets from you why not because bullets most people that get shot that have a bullet that's inside of them the majority of the time they're going to leave it in just because it's not going to do any more damage it's not going to be any worse. And so it's just easier to leave them in. That's the logic behind it. The one in my back, they couldn't take out because it's embedded in bone. I have one in my left hip and then one shattered in my, my right femur. That's a million pieces. And periodically I'll be laying in bed and I go, and I'm like, I'll massage my leg to get the blood, you know, to like, to work, you know, to flow and keep my leg, you know, healthy. And all of a sudden I'll feel and I go, God, what is that? Like an ingrown hair? And I'll pull out like a chunk of copper jacket. And I have a little cup that really? I dump it in. I think I've got 13 in there now. And wow. It's a little cup with a lid they gave me. And anytime the, the, all those little bullet fragments work their way out, it's it's really nuts. And so uh, let's see, where were we? So I went in, got my leg cut off, 
that was pretty horrifying laying there when I woke up and I'm on my back and I'm looking up at the ceiling and I go, okay, just take a look at it. And I started to look and I go, oh, I can't do it. I, I couldn't, I could not look at my leg cause I knew it was gone. And so after about an hour, I finally put my hand down there and I felt it and I went, fuck man, it is gone. And that was, that was pretty rough. Um, did you experience what a lot of the other folks have talked about when they've had amputations, the phantom pain or the phantom feeling of a leg still being there or an arm yeah, still for being sure. there? I would call it a phantom sensation. Sometimes it's painful. It's a, it's more of the only way I can describe it is have you ever had your leg go to sleep really bad? Mm-hmm. And then you try to stand yeah. up and you get that kind of tingling, burning. It's almost painful. You know what I'm talking about? That's yep. kind of what it is times 10. And I get it like if I close my eyes and I, I really think about my legs that aren't there, like right now I can feel my right foot, the bottom of my foot, the arch for some reason. And then my left leg, I can feel uh, nothing really. It's not really feeling like much of anything, but I can feel like a tingling, a buzzing in my right foot and it's not there. So after ICU and all the infections and all the amputations and all that shit got taken care of, I got moved up to a regular floor. How long did that take you from the, from time you went to the hospital till you moved up to that floor? How many, how long were you in there? Wow. And 32 operations before they moved you, you, you were in the OR every single Almost day. Every day. I bet like. I was in there four days a week. And it was, uh, so ultimately, well, they had to do things like, you know, I had this infection in my stomach, so they had to shove a tube, you know, into my gut so that the pus and stuff could run out. And I I just had so much shit like that. It was just horrible. And then I moved up to the other floor and I kind of turned a corner and I started feeling pretty good. Not well, as good as I felt better. Let's, let's say, put it that way. And then I started doing, uh, I started doing, uh, rehab stuff and I hadn't sat up like upright for a long time. And so the first time I sat up, it was, I got real dizzy because your brain is weird and I made some really good friends. And then, uh, my sister who lives in New York state runs a huge hospital network back there, the same one that owns St. Al's. And she's the CEO and she runs the whole thing. So she came to Boise and man, if it wasn't for her, she seriously laid down the law, helped me get a lot of things, um, got me into a rehab facility in Denver called Craig Hospital. And all they do is quads and paraplegics. And it is the best in the... I, there was a girl there from that had got blown up in a terrorist bombing in Belgium or something. And she flew all the way from Europe to go to this hospital. So it's that good. And they do not play around. I mean, there's no, I don't feel like it today. You get one shot at, I'm not going to treatment today. And if not, boom, you're out of there. They boot your ass out that fast. And so it was good to get up to exercise. We'd get up, we'd go to their you know, adaptive gym, they had swimming pools, they had all this cool stuff. And I met some really amazing people. Um, 
And then when I got out of there, I came home. How long was that? Got another month and a half, six weeks. I don't want to say, you know, if you're going to get shot, this is the way to do it. But with you getting shot, if you think about all the things that could have worked against you, but you just, the fact that you mentioned your sister was the CEO of the freaking hospital chain. I mean. It's unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, the. The lady that runs St. Al's, and I'm, and this is no joke. I mean, they have a cancer treatment building, a heart treat. I mean, this is a huge hospital here. This isn't like it only holds thirty people. This thing is massive. And shit, what was I? What were I? What was I about just talking? Talking about your sister yeah, coming in, laying down the law. Oh, the lady that runs St. Al's, the one here in Boise. She gave her her own office and her own workspace and computer. So she could still work and stay there with me. They were really awesome to accommodate her. Um, so then when I came home, my house wasn't quite finished cause they had to remodel some stuff and I had to stay in a hotel, which sucked, but ultimately. Are you still living in yeah, the same place? Yeah, I've been here for nine years now. And best neighborhood I've ever lived in. And I love it here. And all my neighbors are beautiful people. They help me so much. They take my trash cans out, bring them in. I mean, they're just nice. You know, they're just good people. And um, Mm -hmm. I love it here. The house is great. They completely redid the whole thing. It's like a completely different house. It's beautiful. I love it. Um, Now, when you say they redid it, who's they? (laughs) Most of the dudes that re- redid my house were cops and guys that owned, uh, one of them owned a roofing, own, still does, owns a roofing company. He redid the roof. A lot of guys, you know, when you're in college, you do drywall, right? At, you know, as a side gig or whatever you're doing. There's a lot of guys who's in the community, this at Boise in general, the, the guy that did the electrical work did it for free. The guy that did the concrete work did it for free. So I was able to kind of upgrade my house a little bit because a lot of guys said, look, we'll step up and we want to help out however we can. And I guarantee you, this wouldn't have happened in any other city, but Boise, they took care of me big time. And, uh, the people that mow my lawn, you know, they do it for free and, uh, it's great. Shit. I got a, a boy scout troop when it snows, bing bong. Hey, we're here to shovel your driveway. Like, thanks. And there's six Boy Scouts out there shoveling my driveway. And so it's awesome, man. I mean, it, it, it really moved me how important Boise and Idaho in general really recognizes their police. They don't, if this would have happened in LA, it wouldn't have, it would have been a different story. Not all cops did it, but so many just poured in. Everybody wanted to help. And so. They helped wherever they could. Even if they didn't know what they're doing, they're like, okay, you move that dirt from over here and put it over here. Mm-hmm. Okay. So they're shoveling dirt. That, yeah. That's all they could do. They'd shovel dirt. So it was. That's our brotherhood. Yeah, it was it was phenomenal. Every damn grade school, elementary school age kid wrote me a card and they put them up in the entire station, the police station from all, just, you know, get well. And they had all the boys you know, would draw a card with a police car and a bad guy and them shooting the bad guy and blood coming out of them. And then the girls would write me cards that had like a rainbow and sunshine and daisies. And they're like, get well, you know, and the boys, you know, they like police. And so, um, when I came home, it was, a, it was a rough 
we're getting into the rough part right now. I mean, this is where I really struggled. The rest of it, I struggled, but I always had that mentality where you just got to give your nuts a tug and be a fucking man and deal with it, you know, and that's how I was. And no matter what happened. Hey, before you get into, before you get into your home, uh, I just want to address, I know you said it would be tough for you, but I just want to close out on one of the other heroes there. And it was Jardo. Mm-hmm. Where did, when did you find out about Jardo? Because I was reading the story yeah, he here died a few days after. and a lot of people don't. Yeah, he did. He, he actually was up and around. Mm-hmm. They removed one of his lungs. He was up and around and then just something happened, emergency surgery, and he coded on the table. Yeah, he, uh. When he got shot, um, he bit the guy in the chest, which gave the guys behind me enough time to really kind of move up and step over me, and that's when they shot and killed the guy. But he shot Jardo kind of in his hip, and the bullet moved up and was in his uh, scruff of his neck. And, you know... They thought it was a miracle that he lived. But what they didn't know is the bullet had grazed his aorta and his heart. And it had degraded it to an extent where, you know, after like day four or five, the news was like, God, Jardo lived. You know, he's a hero. And then like the next day, he just went out in the back. (laughs) He went out in the backyard and then it burst and it just fucking killed him. Just like that. He died right there. And, well, I got a picture of him. Uh, he'd obviously been through the surgery. You can see where he's been shaved yeah. and stuff. And just that face, brother. I mean, it's like, it's hard for me not he's to. A, he's, a, he's a good dog, man. I got a lot of pictures. I've had people draw me pictures of him. I have him in my house. Um, as a result of Jardo dying, <clears throat> excuse me, as a result of him dying, we were able to, outside of our academy in Meridian, the police academy, we have the peace officers memorial where they have a you know a granite wall with all the de- officers that have been killed in the state of Idaho since shit the late 1800s you know and we had a famous artist I'll send you the pictures Murph so you can see them too but they're uh they made a full size bronze statue of Jardo and then they have a little granite plaque underneath it where they put all the names of the dogs that have been killed in the line of duty that, I'm sorry, man. I don't mean to get emotional. I told you this is brother. You don't talk. No, no, this don't is the hardest part for is uh, talking about a damn dog. But I love that fucker and uh, his handler Shane is a very, very good friend of mine, and it was rough for him. But, um, anyways, I didn't know he died until I woke up, and they had a big ceremony for him at the university and I'll bet there was 5,000 people there and there was probably every university every dog from every agency military to police to rescue dogs there must have been 100 dogs there and they gave Jaro do you know what your last 42 is you know when you retire and dispatch gets on and they tone alert they're dee doo dee Oh no! Yeah, it's real hard, and they say, you know, this is 
Stephen Murphy's last day. He's been a cop for 32 years. You know, thank you for your service. And those are always touching for me. And they Absolutely. did that for Jardo, which was really nice. And uh, they gave him the Medal of Honor posthumously. And he's got a beautiful picture of himself with his ashes and everything in the station. It's fucking killer. But going back to that, I mean, I just, I don't know why. I just, it just bothers me a lot. And it still does to this day. But once I, once I found out that he had died, it was, uh, that was pretty bad. And you were still in a coma when it happened, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, and so I saw the video of the memorial that they had for him. And uh, that was really nice. So that's, that's to answer your question. Sorry. It was a tough part, man, even for me. I mean, you watch this stuff and it's like. Mm-hmm. Well, they're just so selfless, you know. And they, they'll. There's an armed robber that runs into the woods. You send your dog after him, you know. And you you try not to put them in too many dangerous situations, but those dogs, fuck, that's what they do. I don't want to call them a tool, but I don't want to say, you know, you don't want to send them on a guy that's armed because you know he's going to get killed. And the thing that people don't understand is that Shane, his handler, didn't even send him. He didn't. Fucking Jardo just did it on his own. He bypassed six operators, bypassed me laying on the ground and fucking bit the guy. And then got shot and he ran. And Shane was pissed. He thought he was, he didn't know he'd been shot. And then he, you can see on the news camera, which was down the street, you can see Jardo running across the street. And the dispatch audio is really rough because Shane's like, I'm going, you know, I'm running code to West. It's called West Valley Vet, which is a ice trauma center for dogs in Boise. And uh, he ran him down there. Yeah. And they, they, they gave him the once over for sure. And they do all the shots. And so they know Jardo and uh, mm-hmm. sure as shit, you know, he died a few days later, but um, it's, it's, as, it's as bad as losing a brother officer. It, it's, it's, yeah, it's worse, man. It's, it's, I don't know why I just, I think it's, I don't know if it's worse, mm-hmm. but it's, it's, it's as bad. I think it's their love. It's their love for you. Their love for what they do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Somebody fucking quit cutting onions. I'm getting tired oh, of this. Right? Yeah, so, this is, uh... oh, Jesus. All right. Back to our regularly scheduled podcast. That's, that is not an authorized digression. So uh, nobody gets to drink on that one. While we're not, when I say you don't get to drink, there was, there's what is one authorized thing everybody gets to do when you hear this podcast. Uh, you tip a drink to Jardo tonight. So, uh, don't right. don't say that, man, because that's yeah, I'm gonna start tearing up again. All right. <laughs> Damn it, stop this shit. I'm telling you people. <laughs> My wife, honey, quit cutting onions in the <laughs> yeah. kitchen. Yeah. Damn I know, it. The pollen is horrible in my kitchen. It right is, now. man. It is out here. I can tell you I can vouch for that. Um choking hey, up. So Kevin, I got I got one quick question for you. How old were your daughters at this time? Fuck. You're gonna We're gonna do it again? You're gonna make me do this again. Um, my daughters were, let's see, one's 20 now and one's 18. So 12 and 14. Oh my gosh. And I've seen a picture of them. Beautiful. Oh God. They're gorgeous. My youngest is a freshman at Boise State and she's about 5'10 and an absolute smoke show. 
I bring, have her bring her any boy over, and I we talk about guns and damn right the fucking iron fist of justice. You know what I'm saying That's as right. a father. <laughs> mm-hmm. But Clean they uh, shotgun. They uh, yeah, you just tell him you might outrun me in this wheelchair, dude, but you can't outrun a 44. So you so. never fuck with a guy that can shoot you from a different zip code. <laughs> I like that one too. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, I get home. Um, the girl I'd been dating for about four years, about a week after we got home said, see ya. (laughs) She left. She couldn't handle it. My daughter struggled pretty hard with it. You know, going from their dad, a you know, big SWAT guy to a guy with one leg and missing his other leg and in a wheelchair. That was really hard for him. And, uh, so you said you had a girlfriend. What was the ex situation then? In what terms? What do you mean? The, you Were you married before? I mean, uh, Oh shit. I, I got, I haven't been married for 14 years. I got divorced when my daughters were two and four. Okay. And I pretty much raised them on my own. So the ex is not too much in the picture. Uh, she is a little bit. She's gotten more so that way. I mean, she lives here in Boise. I mean, I have no hard ill will. It's been so long that it's like we. Right. we t- it's not not like we hate each other or anything. We get along fine. But you were the you were the you were the primary parent then during this time. Um. Yeah, I'd say so. Um, especially financially, you know, because she didn't she wasn't making much money. So I paid for every basketball camp. Every you know what I'm saying. Yeah. Everything your kids go through, I, I took care of that. But that's not part of the story. I don't, you know, really do that. But my daughters really, it was tough for them. And I have a lot of regrets about that too. And that's when it really started when I got back home is uh, I couldn't, I, I just struggled, you know. Once I got home and I didn't have any more hospital shit, I didn't have any more of this. I didn't have to go to the prosthetic guy. I didn't have to do this. And my daughters went back to school and you know what I did? I just sat here. I was like, what am I going to do? You know, I'm in a wheelchair. My pain was, you know, it's brutal. I can't really work. Mm -hmm. And I'm going, and in my mind, I'm telling myself, I said, I'm going to go back and like, cause I used to teach, you know, we, we do our own advanced Academy and our own Academy now and that BPD. And, you know, I was a defensive tactics instructor for a long time and, all that kind of stuff and building search and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, man, I could do that. I think. But then I found out real quick, I couldn't. And, uh, why just the pain? I mean, I can only sit, I can only sit in my chair for about three hours at a time. And then I have to lay down. It's just like you guys, like right now you've been in your chair, your, your back gets tight, you know, yeah, you got to stand up and you've been in training classes where you're like, you see everybody stretch. I have to do that, but I have to do it laying on my bed and kind of move. And I, I just couldn't, I can't work an eight hour day. It just wouldn't, it's just impossible for me with my injuries. And, uh, so I started and this is where, you know, I kind of get my transparency comes through. I wouldn't have talked about this before, but I couldn't stop thinking about killing myself. Mm-hmm. And I thought about it a lot. Was it to get, was it to, because of the pain? That was, a, Is that- it was making me crazy. And I was just, it was just so much stuff that came down on top of me, you know, just everything all at once. And I've never once in my life. And 
keep in mind, I mean, you look at first responders, I know paramedics who killed themselves. You know, we had a fireman who hung himself from the from his ladder truck inside their station two years ago. Um, wow. We had a, a Meridian cop shoot himself. He he was he just moved here from San Diego PD in the field training program. He goes, Can you pull over for a second? His FTO is like, Yeah. He pulls over, he gets out right in the front of the car and shoots himself. I mean, there's all kinds of shit. It happens all the fucking time, way more than people know. And I never wow. really understood. I've never been that way. I've never been like, but what, what the point I'm trying to make is the average citizen that might be an accountant may experience a traumatic event in their life, maybe three times. If you're a cop and you've, they use a 20 year career. If you've had a 20 year career, they estimate that you've witnessed or been involved in about 700 <laughs> critical events. Okay. And mm-hmm. I mean, like I've seen 13 year old boy hang himself in his closet. You got to cut him down, you know, the, from the accidents to critical incidents, shooting, stabbings, you know what I'm saying? All this shit mm-hmm. that you're consuming all that stuff. And as cops, you want to be, you can't tell your brother that you're, this is really bothering you, bothering you or another cop because now you're weak or you can't handle the job. You know what I'm saying? It's yeah. just part of it. And I started slipping, man. I just was slipping and I could, I could feel myself. And I just, I came up with a plan. They gave me my gun back. You guys, we were running Glock 21s, which is a 45. They hand it to me in the evidence box with crime, with the tape on it, the report number, my name. And I opened it one time in the last six years and there was blood on it and it was all rusty. And I'm like, why the fuck would you give me this? And I threw up my gun safe and it's hidden. So it's at the bottom somewhere. I, can, I can't even see it in the box. I don't know what I'm going to do with it. I think I'm going to give it back because I don't want it. But then I started thinking, I go, well, I'm going to use that gun because it's theirs and they're going to take one of mine. Not that I'm a gun freak, but you know, I got four or five handguns and a couple of ARs and a couple of hunting rifles. And I was like, I don't want to use one of mine because they'll keep it, you know, for evidence. And I was going to shoot myself. And I, I go, what are, where am I going to do it? And I go, well, I'm not going to do it in my car because, you know, what a mess it's going to make. And maybe I'll just go out in the desert or out in the mountains and just kind of go off behind a tree and do it. So I don't really, you know, you know what I'm saying? And I don't want anybody that knows me to see. Uh, that's what was going through my head. Mm-hmm. And man, I seriously thought about it long and hard. I was committed to it. And then I started thinking about my daughters and that got pretty rough. And then what's the closest you ever came? <laughs> well, fucking putting it against the side of my head and counting. Mm. <laughs> okay. Do it on three, one, two. I'm like, fuck. And I, I couldn't quite do it. But I so had, what went what went through your mind between two and three to make you stop? Oh, Man, I don't know. I've never really thought about it. <laughs> no one's ever asked me that question. I don't think there was anything specific. 
I didn't really want to go out like that. Like I didn't want to take the easy way out, which I've never been. And uh, that was part of it. And then I go, today just might not be the day. Maybe it's next week. And I just didn't. And then there was one one thing that happened that really turned me around. And I, I may have talked to Stephen about this, but I was at, we had a SWAT competition where we had teams from Washington and Oregon came over to our range and, you know, we have a shoot house and I just wanted to go out there and, you know, just kind of hang out with the, with the fellas and, you know, talk shit, you know what I'm talking about. And, uh, I'm sitting there in my chair and I'm watching them shoot and this guy walks up next to me and I'm looking up at him. And just like I, I told Steve, I go, this dude's some sort of like top tier operator. I don't know who this guy is, but he's some sort of seal or some shit. I don't know. You can, you know, they all fucking look the same and dress the same. And he goes, Hey, do you remember me? And I went, no, Fuck, who are you? And he told me, he says, my name's Dan Nelson. And I go, fuck Dan Nelson. Back in the day when I was a brand new cop, probably in 2000, he was a senior at the high school here. and he. They had a boxing club, PAL, you know, Police Activities League. It was a PAL boxing. And I used to go help and spar and shit. And he was one of the kids. And now I recognize him. He had a big beard and everything. Long story short, he ended up going to UCLA, played linebacker, gets out, was a state trooper of all things. Fucking A. For about, there we go. I know, for about two years. And then he That's why he was job. a top-tier operator, I'm telling you right now. <laughs> no, <laughs> that's exactly why, right? And he, uh, I started and I, you know, and then everything came back and I'm like, holy shit. Now, now, you know, I knew who he was and I started talking to him. And in 2017, which was about four months before, you know, he got back, he was in, uh, the, it's spelled P E K H A, I think Pekka Valley in, uh, Afghanistan. Peshawar or H A. Which I believe is Pe- Pe- Pekka, Pekka or Pekka, one of the, I don't know how to pronounce it, but Pekka. Anyways, he was a captain of this. Uh, he got in with the Green Braves. He was the ninth, I think the ninth special force captain. Okay. And they were over there killing ISIS, splitting wigs, doing the Lord's work. And they got into a village. The only hard structure was a mosque. They cleared it. But what they didn't know is the ISIS had planted a bunch of explosives underneath the concrete floor. And after about two hours of them occupying the building, they blew it up. He lost a couple guys. Um, he got really fucked up. Brain injury, crushed his pelvis, all kinds of issues. And then they, they got ambushed. He had to, you know, fight his way for a couple kilometers till they could get some air support, A-10s, and, you know, help him out. He went to... Yeah, Dan... Went to Walter Reed. Um, his second son was born while he was at Walter Reed. Um, ended up making it back to Boise. And his best friend from high school was on our SWAT team. And I didn't, his name's uh, Dan Megida. He's a Basque guy. And um, anyways, we kind of reconnected. And sure as shit, uh, he's the only guy I've ever met that has kind of gone through a lot of stuff like I've gone through. I'm not going to compare myself to a, you know, Green Beret or a PJ or whatever, but I don't know too many guys who have been wounded in a combat situation to the length that I have or what he has. 
And so then we ended up just like coming together and I was able to really open up and talk to him about it. And sure as shit, you know, he, he was going through a lot of the same thing I was going through and that dude really helped save my life just being, you know, part of it. And then he got involved in an in outfit, which is called mission 43. You should look it up. It's amazing. You guys have heard of Albertson's grocery stores, the Albertson's family foundation, but Albertson's was founded in Boise. Joe Albertson lived in Boise. The first store was in Boise and he mission 43, 43 is because Idaho is the 43rd state in the, in the union. And he, uh, he started working for them and now it's for veterans and I got involved with them. And then he put me in contact with an outfit called challenge athletes foundation. And I just started instead of sitting on my ass at my house, kind of feeling sorry for myself, thinking about ending it. I just got, I was able to turn it around and, um, it's still difficult, but you know, I would get, I would call him if I could, you know, I can't sleep. Sometimes he'd call me, uh, sometimes he'd come over and you would just sit there and talk, you know, and it was wonderful. I really enjoyed it. And I just talked to him a few days ago and they're building a huge field house with indoor pool, all for adaptive athletes. And they're, they're doing a lot of really good stuff. And, uh, so I've been, I played hockey, uh, swam. What else did I do? Oh, cross country skiing in an adaptive chair, um, all kinds of fun stuff. And hmm. I, I enjoy it a lot. What's, what's the lesson you've learned from that? From what part? Just, just getting out in the adaptive chairs, but getting out skiing and swimming and stuff. I mean, you just got to, uh, I, I just, you, you just got to do it. I, I can't really describe it any other way. I mean, people ask me like, how do you, like fishing, like how do you learn? I just had the, an hour long conversation with one of my best friends who's a hell of a fly angler. And we want to go up at the end of May on opening day up at Silver Creek. And I want to use a float tube and float through this big spring creek. And I've never done it before, it, you know, as a double amputee paraplegic. And so we sat there and we kind of worked it out. We're like, how are we going to do it? Here's you want to be in a float tube because you that way you can carry a hell of a lot more beer. Oh, Bud Light. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> That's not beer. No, no. no it's just I, he, he would have to hold on to me. And I said, I can't yeah. kick. Obviously, I don't have legs, but I'd have to kind of he'd have to hold on to me and I can still fish. And, you know, I still fish, but it's just different. And I want to do that because it's better. And so learning how to get in my drift boat. What was I going to do? I can get in my boat now. Um, I have a 53 Chevy pickup. That's a hot rod. That's all. It's got a 302 small block in it. And I put hand controls in it and I drive that. I have a three-wheel Harley. I ride a motorcycle. Jeez. Um, I got an electric mountain bike. That's a hand crank mountain bike. They'll do like 20 miles an hour. I ride that. The whole thing is you just can't feel sorry for yourself. For I don't give a shit. If you have cancer, if you have whatever, just go do shit that you normally would do it. And it's amazing how getting outside and getting some sunshine and meeting new people and, you know, like, you know, Brian, who you're going to talk to him tomorrow, ask him about how he almost got kicked out of up at the ski resort. He almost got kicked out because a lot of these kids that come in, they're little, right? They're like six-year-olds, eight-year-olds, and they've never played a sport in their whole life. And they might be an amputee or they might be, they were born, you know, like that. And we, we go and, you know, Brian's just like me. 
you know, we're like, okay, we're going to have a race with these other kids. Now we're going to win. You understand what winning is, right? And we get just all excited. And the kids are like, yeah, we're going to do it. We're going to, and some lady walks up to Brian, you know, and she goes, um, we just try to be inclusive in our groups. And we're trying to, and we are laughing so hard at that. She goes, we might have to ask if you're this aggressive and all the kids, we were having a blast because they've never had that before, you know? And we were laughing so hard because she thought that he was being mean to him, but we were just getting them pumped up, you know, to, to ski on these little chairs with your poles, you know, and they were having the time of their lives. You know, they, we, I'd do it on the hawk. I'd take all the kids and I would get them all. Okay. We're going to have a four on four. You're going to play left wing. You're going to play right wing. And, and I go, you guys ready? We're not going to lose losing. You know, nobody loses in this. We're, we're only going to win. And they just get so pumped. And that's my favorite thing about it is being around it, you know, just, you know, Give them the lessons of Ricky Bobby. Second place is just first loser. You, you know, ain't, you ain't lying. Well, nobody you know, nobody you, remembers anybody you that got first, s- you're last. Yeah. Nobody knows who got second place ever. <laughs> and and as cool as that is, I mean, you're still giving back to the community, even in the you know in the shape that you're in now. It's I mean, it's ingrained in you. You were born for this kind of stuff. Yeah, it was. Yeah, I went. I was here, and then I went here, and then I kind of go. Now I'm back up here with a little bit of dips. You know back and forth and so um yeah it's been a it's been a hell of a journey man hell of a ride for sure hell of a there's ride there's so many stages in this thing where the right person showed up at the right time right i agree for the right reasons yeah the the everybody on my team the bravery that they showed um the fuck it was just I'm just really proud of my guys, man. Really proud yeah. of them. It was yeah. it was amazing. From on lease and the paramedics to the guys on the team to, you know, being in a gunfight seven feet away and stepping over me and engaging the guy and getting shot at and getting shot. And, you know, it was a hell of a gunfight and it was very close yeah. and it was loud. That's and it, the definition of close quarters battle. You ain't lying. It was closer than I like to be. <laughs> That's mm-hmm. why I went to the sniper side so I could maybe shoot somebody from 300 yards away, not six feet. <laughs> Another zip code. Yeah. Hey, That's pal, right. <laughs> step to the window. Yeah, yeah. sir. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> this is how you do Hoshna negotiations, which Murph and I are going to talk about Waco later. Yeah. yeah I, I Look, so, um, yeah, we took the roller coaster with you just on this thing. I, of all the podcast reviews we've done, this for me has been one of the most emotional ones just from a personal standpoint, because yeah. we've all lost friends to suicide. We've all lost friends in the line of duty. Um, and we've talked to several of our guys uh, that were that close. They had the gun up there. They had the gun in the mouth. They were they were half an ounce away on that trigger pull from ending everything. Um, and just, you know, somebody intervenes, whatever you guys want to call it. It's like, you're here for a reason, brother. This is not your day to die. It wasn't your day to die then either. Yeah, it's a, it's a, fate is a fickle mistress, my friends, and it's the way things work out, and uh, I don't know, it's just a so weird... your English lit degree just came into... I was, into, say, I just was thinking in. the same thing, that's something I'm, I'm literally made Sorry. to say. Fate is a fickle mistress. I don't know any problem to say that. Just rubbing our nose in it. Sorry, I apologize. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we got to get a little lighter, lighter note well, here anyway. We got to end this on a lighter note. Yeah, we can't Let's end. We it. can't end dark like that. Hey, well, I just pulled it up. It's mission 43.org. Where yep. else, where else can people go to, if they want to support or help out? What do you suggest? I mean, I donate where I can, like the national law enforcement officers, Memorial, uh, tunnel to towers, 
ODMP, you know, um, where, where else, if people want to help out, what, you got a couple ideas? Yeah, I would, right now, I'd look on your computer and look up Challenge Athletes Foundation. They're out of San Diego. That's a tremendous organization. And they're they're nationwide. They're not just in Boise, although they have a Boise chapter. That right there was probably one of the biggest things that helped me was to learn how to swim. I had to go to the YMCA and learn how to swim. Try swimming with one leg and being paralyzed. That was challengedathletes.org. So mission43.org, challengedathletes.org. Mm-hmm. Those two organizations are phenomenal. And I'm going to give a, a, a little word of caution that I've learned since I've been hurt. There's a lot of people who start up an organization, whether it's that we want to do adaptive athletes and scuba diving, and they're crooks. Trust me, they're crooks. They do it to, to steal money from people. You mm-hmm. donate money and they never do anything. And so be very, and a lot of it's military based, not just police based, but there's some police ones. So if you're going to donate to something, make sure it's valid. It's, it's good. You can go to charity navigator. That's one of the sites that rates uh, sites go to charity navigator and you can, you can find out how legit these folks are. I gotcha. I did not know. um, I did not know about that. I'm going to take, make a note of it. They actually, they'll do things like they look at, do you have, do you have articles, you know, do, do you have, what's your board composition like? Do you have bylaws? Do you have these kind of controls in place, financial stuff? Mm-hmm. And so when you look at somebody like uh, Tunnels to Towers and, mm-hmm. and the, the biggest thing you look for is how much for every dollar they raise, how much actually goes into the foundation and how much of it goes for administrative and overhead. Yeah. I, I just think people, and people can be real, you know, shitheads. And so I think they just do it, at, you know as an advance, they, they just take advantage of it. Like they want people to donate money and, uh, you know, yeah, just go to charity navigator.org. And they, 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 like I said, it's one of the most comprehensive sites on the internet for, for in the U S for rating nonprofits. I knew that sounds awesome. Did you get that picture? I just sent you Steve, which one I just sent you one. It'll show up here in about, 10 seconds. I don't know the way your internet connectivity has been working out there. God, no shit. It's terrible. Yeah, Yeah, we've got you. Yeah, folks may not know. We've had to put it on pause and restart probably four or five times. Just the, it just, it just happens. This is a Medal of Honor winner. Yeah, that's Art Jackson. He's from Boise. He's, uh, he won the Congressional Medal of Honor in World War II. And I ended up because that was another guy I met. He was a great guy. Talk about a stud. You want to read a a story about that guy? He was in, Pelu, Pelu, Pelu in the South Pacific. Yeah, it's hard for me to pronounce Pelu, Pelu. But he, uh, yeah, that guy is, uh, man, what a great guy! Absolutely stud. I think he killed seventy-two Japanese by himself with satchel charges and stuff. He's got a great story. Great story. But that's right there. I had to send that to you because that's on the blue turf. You see it behind you. Yeah, yep. I was working. I was working a a football game and uh, for overtime, and sure enough. that he was there. So what was his name again? Art Jackson. Art Jackson. I was uh, on the board of a nonprofit. Um, and one of our people there, she brought her husband and I always knew him as Barney. He was a Marine Corps guy. Mm-hmm. We go to a Ruth Chris for a fundraiser and a different uh, down in crystal city. He shows up, he's wearing the congressional medal of honor around his neck. Shut it up. was Lieutenant B- Barney Barnum. They've named uh, a littoral combat shit af- ship after him now. And when I read his story, I mean, it's like I've been talking to this guy for a year and a half. He never once mentioned the CMH. 
Really? And then it's, yeah. And then it's like you, and then the minute, but here's what happens. You find a CMH winner. He was in this, he was out of Vietnam. There was a lot, because we're in Northern Virginia, a lot of military and stuff there. Uh Word got out that there was a CMH guy there. We finally had to tell people he's got to go eat. An hour and a half, the line in Ruth's Chris was snaking out into the hallway. Every Marine within earshot and Army guy within earshot was over at Ruth's Chris wanting to get their picture taken with him. I believe you. I When I met him, he actually came to the hospital and met me there. He came and visited me in the hospital. It was phenomenal. Well, let's let's figure out a way to bring this to a close because there's no easy way to do it. But we do want to. I mean, we we want to talk. We are going to be talking um, actually in a couple days. So what's unique about this, folks, is that we're talking. We're getting Kevin's side of it. Then we're going to get the other side of it from uh, you know his backup that was there. So we're going to be getting. You're going to be getting two different views of the same situation, which is the first time we've kind of done this. So um, it's great to get your side, and then we'll get his side. I think it's a great idea because when you talk to Brian, he's, hey, that dude is funny. And it, yeah, it, his version is, <laughs> it's totally, it's, it's just weird. I've talked to him about it. And you know what's funny is even as we wrap this up, there's people that were there, even to this day. I don't know what it is about my brain, but I'll talk to him and I say, what do you remember about that day? Like, what do you remember? Mm-hmm. And the guy is like, well, I was golfing and then I got the page and then I came down. And for some reason, hearing other people's perspective on what happened is, it helps me a lot. Like their version of it. Does that make sense? Yeah. It, well, it's, just, it's a pretty cool thing. When you and him compared notes, did you remember things differently? Oh yeah, for sure. We, any shooting yeah. we've been involved in. We always have a you know a, a tactical debrief and you know yep. you gotta you gotta go to the hotel and you give up all your shit they you know because it's a criminal investigation even though it's an OIS and it's uh you sit there and I go God did you guys see this and somebody else will go no not at all and I'm like you didn't hear that or see that or yeah I mean it's funny like even you go and you you do your interview and they go how many bullets or how many f- shots did you hear fired and I go three. And there ended up being 21 shots fired, you know, that, that type of, you just, it's weird how people, everybody's got a different perspective on it. It's really, Really it's really cool and fascinating. It's fascinating. In 89, my partner was shot in Miami. We've had him on the show here, Kevin Stevens. And that, believe it or not, that was the first time he and I ever sat down and talked about the shooting in which he was hit twice and the informant was killed. And it's amazing how we remembered things differently. I mean, oh, right yeah. there, I told him, I said, I'll be yeah. behind you all the way. And he didn't take me seriously. I pushed him right out there in front of those bullets. And he caught him. <laughs> that's, what, that's what I did. I'm the best damn bullet catcher <laughs> BPD's ever had. Hey, actually, to finish up, just a quick question. Did, mm-hmm. did any of the bullets hit your armor, your body armor? Not one. Damn. <laughs> not, wow. not one freaking bullet. And what else is kind of shitty about it is every bullet that I got hit with if it would have been just that one bullet, it would have been a catastrophic injury. Does that make sense? All of them like were catastrophic. Every one of them, my stomach, my back, my femur, my lower leg. Uh, yeah, right through the, the old ball sack. And, and did, did any of uh, Chris's rounds actually hit the guy? Yes, a couple. You, okay. you could see him in the autopsy. Photos, because I have it on a thumb drive. I'd love to send it to you guys to have you look at it. It's, it's got all the dispatch audio and body cam footage and all the shit. And it's, uh, 
you can see dipshit laying on his back and you can see a couple on his left side that I think Chris hit him with, you know, as he initially engaged him. Uh, but I know for a fact, Brian shot him in the face. Danny shot him. And I, I don't know, something like that. We don't talk too much about it, about like, did you, I know for a fact they we're only shit six feet away, seven feet away. And the double tap a dude in the eyebrow, um, even at that distance when he's shooting at you is pretty good. Yep. Well, let's in on a let's in on a good note. So, yeah. um, um, well, first of all, this is this is folks can't see this, but this is us saluting you, brother. You have given more than anybody gives in this uh, profession. I mean, you've you've given of yourself, and I, I can't tell you how honored we are, and, and and me too. Just just to have you on talk about this because Mer says it too. You want to talk about heroes. Here's the real freak. These aren't the people who, oh, I showed up. You know, I get a, do I get a participation ribbon? Yeah. There are no participation ribbons for officer involved shootings. There's no participation ribbons for this. Um, and, and just to have you on the show. So people, people understand the price. It's not just the physical and it's not, not the emotional. It's also the mental. Well, that's, it's the biggest, the, that's the biggest part. That's the biggest battle you go through. Yeah. And I'm going to say one thing, and I know we're going to go, this is only going to take about two minutes. But when Brian and I, we've been to Kansas, Washington. Fucking A, Kansas. We're out in Kansas. Yeah. Uh, I don't, right by the border. We went to the University of Kansas on a tour. It was right by. Lawrence. Yeah, Lawrence, Kate, Kansas. Where you have Kansas City, Kansas PD and Kansas City, Missouri Missouri, PD. yeah. So we were on the Kansas City, Kansas side. But the Missouri, this, these are all gang investigator association yeah. conferences. And we started doing it there. Oh, we've been to Wyoming, et cetera. But. Brian did it at first, which to me, it took a lot of balls for him to do it. But he, and I've told Steve this, but at the end of our presentation, which is usually about three and a half hours long with a couple of breaks, um, he gets done. He says, look, and none of this was ever scripted. He just spoke from his heart, which to me is the most valuable way to do it. And he said, you know, as men, as cops, as military, as whatever it is, you do not like to show weakness. You don't like to say that something's bothering you, et cetera, et cetera. And so we have the we have a tendency, and I know I did this for a long time. I would take something that that was really horrible, like I had a guy shoot himself in the head right in front of his wife and kids. About I was hiding behind a tree because I was only about eight feet from him, and he had a gun, and I'm and he just shot himself right in the head. You take an incident like that and you put it into a little box and you just cram it down as far as you can inside wherever it is. And you know what it's like? It's like those little slivers of your bullet. They will eventually work themselves back absolutely out. Absolutely right. And they will come up and Brian stood up there and he said, look, and like I told Steve, I said, we do an okay job of teaching guys how to fight, shoot, tactical operations, you know movement, bound and overwatch, whatever you want to call it. We teach all that kind of shit, building searches. But you know what we don't teach is the ability to have somebody who is struggling to have a place to go and to have the mental well, the well-being to where you can, you, you have to take your, care of yourself in between your ears. Even if it's for an hour talking to a professional about it, you don't have to tell anybody about it. You can do it covertly or surreptitiously if you want me to use a big word and you do it and uh okay what i'm what i'm all i'm saying is that you can go see somebody 
but you have to get it done because all you're going to do is ruin your marriage. You're going to ruin your, your mental health. You're going to ruin your career. You're going to be a fucking drunk. You're going to, I've, I've done four interventions with cops, pills, booze, name it. And that's, you've got to take care of yourself mentally. And that's the one thing I've learned about this is that, and you don't have to be shot to do it. I told you earlier in the podcast that over a 20 year career, you're going to experience 700 things that are traumatizing to your brain. And you might not think they are, but when six people die in a car crash and you're helping pull the bodies out and they're bloody and they're missing limbs or somebody gets shot and killed or a one, you know what I'm saying? You, those things will mess with you if you don't take care of yourself. And that's the one thing I tell people all the time, especially new cops, take care of yourself mentally, exercise, eat right, you know, go, if something is, is, is traumatic, go talk to somebody about it. We have the EAP program where you can go talk to somebody for free, but you've got to do it or else you will end up in a complete tailspin 15 years into your career, 20 well, and years. Murph old. and I have done, we, one of our sponsors has been better help. And we, we, we tell people all the time, you, you just, even if you want to talk to a stranger, sometimes it's easier to talk to yeah. a stranger than somebody, you know, just yeah. get on the line. A lot of times it helps just to get it out. You just got to get it out. Yes. Cause if you don't, then what happens to those little boxes you cram down, they come up and they surface at the most inappropriate, the worst time of your life. Uh, That's exactly right. Yeah, it all starts adding up. And it's, I, you know, Kevin, I guess I want to say here, brother, it is a true honor to have had you on here. This is uh, one of the most heart-wrenching podcasts, if not the most heart-wrenching podcast we've ever done. Uh, I can't tell you how much we appreciate your honesty, your transparency, being willing to talk about the hard stuff. Um, and, I mean, you had... Uh, we thought we were tough guys, and here we are. We're tearing up too. Now, if I keep talking about it, I will. Onions, Murph. It was fucking onions. I did not it was a, cry. It's it was been, onions. Uh, but it has been a true honor to have you on here. I hope at some point you and I get to meet in person. I'd love to. Um, and uh, we can have a beer if you drink, or we can have a whiskey. I like bourbon. I, I'm i a Belgian beer snob. I'll drink. If you've mentioned Bud Light, though, I will throw your ass out. I, we'll cheer or not. I'm only, I'm only doing that because I see a Bud Light sitting on your desk on this camera right now. No, you don't. That's a water bottle. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. I wasn't going to call man. you shorty, but now I am. <laughs> hey, man. Like I said, I'm only three foot eight now. <laughs> Uh, but hey, you man. know what? The fact that you got this kind of a sense of humor, uh, it just, yeah, no, no, but, but, but in this professional, you have to, in this profession, you got to be able to give each other shit at a certain time. And it's just You've, goes with the territory. got to have a sense of humor, yep. man. You have to, have Absolutely. to, have to, just to get through this We're shit almost 100 day. episodes in and Murph is proof I have a sense of humor. I like it. I like you guys. And hey, and I'm going to thank you for letting me come on. It's always good to get to that spot where, you know, you can kind of let some things out that you, that I normally don't. And I appreciate it. It's good for me. It's good for my spirit. It's good for my mental health. And, uh, I, man, keep doing what you're doing. You guys are doing a hell of a job and I'm going to listen to episode number 79, which is on my whiteboard. I'm going to probably do it this afternoon, which is the guy from, uh, that shooting. Louisville. I don't know where John Mattingly. Where, yeah. Where he shot the drug dealer and his, Girlfriend, girlfriend or yeah. some shit. Brianna Taylor. Yeah. yeah Brianna Taylor. But total bullshit that what the media put out. But that's another side story. Anyways, listen, 
you guys keep it up. And uh, is there anything else you need to know from me, or are we going to sign off? No, no I'll take this. care of the sign off here. So, yeah, I, okay. I, I recommend listen to episode ninety. Also, T.J. Webb, police officer in, uh, in uh, Connecticut, shot six times. Okay. Same thing as you, man. Went through Extremely a lot positive of shit. Attitude. Yeah, really great. Good, attitude. good for him. I'd lo- you know what I'd love to do is if I might do this with Murph, maybe a. You contact that guy and let me see if I can get his number. I'd love to call and th- talk to him. Oh, absolutely. I've, I've only talked, I've talked to one person that's been through the same shit as me, and I'd love to talk to a couple more. Uh, uh, we'll hook you up, brother. We'll hook we, you up, brother. <laughs> yeah. We got a can list you hook here. a brother up. We can hook you up, man. <laughs> yeah. Right, we'll yeah. call it Survivors Club and we'll, uh, we'll do Let's a podcast do around it. All right. Well, look, you don't go anywhere. Murph, you don't go anywhere. Yeah. You guys hold on for just a second. Everybody else, stay tuned for the debrief. I told my wife to quit cutting onions before the damn podcast. And does she listen to me? No. <laughs> you know, after we did uh, Kevin's interview, uh, Connie and I went out to dinner and she had to listen to me recount so much of what we learned from Kevin, what he's been through. What a freaking hero, man, to, to overcome the, the, what he's had to endure. Um, you know, the, his two daughters are still standing there beside him, taking care of him, looking out. And... The response from the community of Boise, amazing. I, 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 that's not even a good enough word, man. It's it's. I keep hearing that you know people want to move to Boise, Idaho, and I'm thinking, why the hell would you want to move out there? But boy, after talking to Kevin and and he loves it, and the response of how the people he doesn't even know are still trying to help him, take care of him, in his in his situation. Hats off to everybody in Boise. You guys are some studs out there. Yeah, well, I know you ain't moving to Idaho, Murph. Not after you built that pool and the hot tub out there and you're living in shorts. Nope. You're not moving to Ohio. Idaho, but, but Kevin, you come and visit me in Orlando anytime, brother. <laughs> and let me tell you, for somebody who went through what Kevin did, the bullet still in his spine that caused I mean, when we watched it, I I couldn't I almost got to the point I couldn't watch it. Yeah. Watching yeah. him in that pain. I I tell you what, just thinking of it now, I'm I'm <laughs> I don't know if it's because I'm getting older or what, man, and my testosterone is going down and my estrogen is going up, but I'm just tearing up thinking about Kevin's uh, interview yesterday. It was just... Well, and his affection for Jardo and what Jardo went through, the dog, and the way he survived initially but then died, and it just, it's hard. I mean, he talked about himself. He had got a little upset, but talking about the dog Mm -hmm. for him is still the most emotional piece of this. Yeah, yeah. I, I just... So all I can say is, Kevin, you're a stud, you're a hero. Thank you for service to your community. Absolutely. The people of Boise owe you, and that sounds like they are paying you in ways that are just unfathomable in almost any community in the United States now. Uh, thank you for your story. Uh, brother, don't ever give up. You know, Never. you need somebody to talk to. I, I don't have a lot of advice, and if I give you advice, it's probably bad advice, but I am always available, and I know Morgan is too. Yep. Uh, just can't wait to meet you in person someday. Anything we can do, brother, um, always reach out. And and I'm telling you, this this is the importance of mental health. We've had uh, BetterHelp has been a great sponsor of the show. Yeah. We've talked about the need to have people to talk to and get help. Do not think you can do this on your own. 
Right. Reach out, get some help. All right. So we hope you guys enjoy this. This has been a, this has been a, this was a rough ride for us. I mean, this, but we enjoyed bringing it to, you, and hopefully you guys do. If you did, head on over to Apple, Spotify, give us those five stars, leave your comments too about this episode, put them in the Facebook fans page, mm-hmm. go to Game of Crimes fans, you know, um, answer a couple questions. Our favorite mafia queen, Sandy Salvato, will let you in, get a discussion going, and let us know what you think about it. Also, head on over to Game of Crimes Podcast.com. That's our website where we have a lot of stuff on the show. Follow us on social media at Game of Crimes on Twitter, Game of Crimes Podcast on Facebook and the Instagram. Uh, but, you know, head on over to patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. We just did the uh, review of the Narco series on Waco uh, for our uh, Case of the Month uh, review. We've got a lot of good stuff coming up for this one with 911. You can't make this shit up. Um, our exclusive stuff for our Warden of the Throne. So you guys head on over there. And uh, again, we thank you guys for being a part of this experience and uh, hearing the stories you'll, you will not hear anywhere else, I guarantee you. Right. So we thank you guys once again for playing the biggest, baddest, most dangerous, tear-jerking, Kleenex-using, mm-hmm. onion-cutting game of all, the Game of Crimes. Mm-hmm.